This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Great day at the Plaza in New York at the Global Business Forum 2019 annual gathering of global political leaders, business leaders, um, activists, and it's all about really high-level conversations. But I do want to say, and Mike set the tone at the top, Mike Bloomberg, of course, owner of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg TV, you know, looking at climate change right. and the role public-private partnerships and how you solve these problems. That came up a lot in the panel discussion that we were uh, fortunate enough to host mm-hmm. uh, earlier in this afternoon. But one of the underlying questions, of course, is what is the state of the global economy and what do we think about businesses? What do we think about consumers? How does U.S.-China trade play into all of it? I put all of those questions to Jonathan Gray. John Gray, he is the president and the COO of Blackstone. He joined me earlier here at the Global Business Forum. Let's listen in to that conversation. And John, just jumping into what feels like the big question right now, which is cautious businesses, optimistic consumers. Help me understand, is there a disconnect? Is there a lag? What's going on? Well, I think what you're seeing is you've got some uncertainty in the world. You certainly have some friction from the China trade. You've got the Brexit situation, and you just have some geopolitical concerns that are making everybody nervous. Businesses are responding by pulling back a bit. You see that in manufacturing, industrial data, capital investment, and you're beginning to see that in earnings from companies. So that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, the consumer is actually doing pretty well around the world, particularly here in the U.S., So I was talking to a friend this morning about what I think of as the three threes, which are we have 3.7% unemployment, wages are growing north of 3%, and home prices are growing north of 3%. So if you think about the consumer, they have a job, wages are going up, and their biggest asset's appreciating in value. And that's why you see this bifurcation. So I'd say when you add it together, I think what it leads to is not a recession, but a slowdown in growth globally, which is what we're experiencing. And so how much does it slow down and when? Are we in that now? I think we're in that now. It's hard to say. The good news is central banks have decided you know, that they're going to lower rates and continue to stimulate, which has helped soften the blow a bit. And it's possible that some of these issues, like China trade or Brexit, get resolved, which would take a little bit of this uncertainty away. I think as investors, though, you don't want to get too caught up in sort of the heat of the moment. You'd want to try to take a longer-term view. So where are you spending money? I know your investors are asking you that yeah. every time they get on the phone with you. Where are you deploying capital? You got 500 plus billion dollars yeah. in assets. Well, that is the big question. I think in this point in the economy where you have slow growth, you also have pretty high multiples, right? The, the low rate of interest rates, it's created expanded multiples. So you have to be cautious on where you invest. What we're looking at are places where technology is creating a lot of change and where they're really in the path of growth, industries in the path of growth. So globally in logistics, we've talked about it before, we've been the big buyer of warehouses around the world, probably bought $70 billion on the simple premise that goods are moving from physical retail to online retail. We're doing things around content creation as a result of the cost of distribution of media coming down. 
you want to service that industry. Software as a solution, things migrating to the cloud. We bought a big business that does uh, things in the human resource area online. Um, India, another area that's benefiting from IT services. So I think as the global economy transformed, even though the overall growth rate isn't that high, trying to find those industries and sectors that have the wind at their back is really important. So you a net buyer or are you a net seller at this point across all of your empire? You know, I, I would say it's a bit of both. I, I wouldn't say, you know, there's one clear path. I think when we find businesses that have stabilized and sort of our buy it, fix it, sell it approach, we exit. On the other hand, there are plenty of things that we still have conviction in and we hold. So you're seeing us sell, but at the same time deploy a lot of capital. We put out $56 billion of capital in the last 12 months. So we're still finding interesting things. I would say it's more selective and it tends to be in larger situations. Right. Uh, 30 seconds to go. Real estate. How are you feeling, especially in the United States, residential and commercial? I would say okay. Uh, the headwind is that prices are high, multiples are high for real estate, the economy slowed. The good news is that supply is pretty limited and rates remain low. I think, again, you've got to focus on where do you see better growth. So west coast of the United States, more technology, more job creation, warehouses, again, another area as opposed to retail, and then rental housing. The shortage of new home construction has led to strength in rental housing and single-family homes. And that was my conversation with John Gray. He is the president and the chief operating officer of Blackstone. Then we got a chance to catch up, obviously, with his boss, Steve Schwartzman, on our panel a little bit later on. We did, uh, and a great conversation, and we talked earlier about the optimism. What's great about Blackstone, I mean, what is it, more than half $545 billion. billion dollars in assets under half management? Half a trillion. Half a trillion, forgive me. Right, right, right. Um, so get your head around that. So many different businesses, big exposure to real estate, and a lot of different types of assets. So, again, uh, you know, a company and, and individuals who really have a good snapshot of what's going on in the world. Well, and it's funny, and, you know, not to talk out of school, but as I was wrapping up with John off air, he basically said that what we talked about on the air was essentially every conversation he has with a big investor in I the bet. sense that they call him up and they essentially say, hey, look, I... I see these companies who are saying, oh, I'm a little bit cautious, I'm worried about trade, I'm worried about this, worried about this, worried about that. And then meanwhile, all these consumers are saying, I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to buy a house, I've right. got a job, let's buy some Christmas presents. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bifurcation of sorts and a dichotomy that people want to figure out. And then they say to him, so how are you going to spend all that money? Right, because they have so much, right, to still put to work. And I do wonder about that because I feel like the private equity guys, especially the, the bigger players, continue to raise money, right, continue to bring out new funds. Um, I feel like we've done the stories on the infrastructure funds. And yeah. I still feel like that money is waiting to be put to work. Fascinating to hear the prime minister of India, you know, uh, talking about infrastructure needs, right? And certainly they are open for business and right. ready um, to work with companies to put it to work. Well, and on that topic of infrastructure that came up on our panel as well with mm -hmm. Anand Mahindra, they have a huge renewal renewables business. And he was yeah. being a little bit funny about Solar. it, but essentially saying, listen, everybody just don't worry about this. It's not a thing. Don't, don't. And, and by the way, I'm going to make a ton of money while you're looking <laughs> yeah. the other way or either arguing about the causes and effects or saying, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. Meanwhile, he said, you know, their renewables business is one of their best performing, one of the best performing They're making in the world. money off of it. Totally. Right? They're finding, you know, a lot of business opportunities. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we'll hear a little bit later in the show, I believe, from 
Bruce Flat, uh, who's the CEO of Brookfield. Mm-hmm. You know, he was also along this morning. Uh, he's actually on a panel right now with uh, President Clinton and the president, the current president of Colombia. He was talking about Brexit, the impact on their investments there because the only firm that's actually nipping at Blackstone's heels from a uh, assets under management is, is Brookfield because they're combining with Oak Tree as you that's remember right, that's right. that deal's going to close on Monday Talk to Howard Marks I believe about this Exactly they're going to have half a trillion dollars of their own under management so these two big investors so we'll get that perspective a little bit later on. All right. Looking forward to that and a lot more to come from the Bloomberg Global Business Forum 2019. To all these patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. I know what that theme song is. It's McDonald's, and it is, of course, the world's largest fast food chain, trying to make it in an age of code and kale. Behind it all, Steve Easterbrook, who has been president and CEO of McDonald's for, I think, about four years, a little bit more than that. This feature story in the magazine this week, online and at Bloomberg.com. It's let's, the cover. It is the cover story, and let's talk about it uh, with uh, Leslie Patton. She is our Bloomberg News consumer reporter. She's in our news. Sure. Chicago. Chicago. Sorry about that. She's in their Chicago bureau. Sorry. I'm like trying to remember where everybody is. And of course, Jill Weber is with us, uh, the editor of the magazine, joining us uh, back in our New York studio. So, um, Jill, you made this the cover. I have to say, I love this story. I had no idea. Jason and I were talking about it all of what was going on at McDonald's in terms of becoming more digital. Yeah, so this was a story that we it piqued our interest a while ago when McDonald's started to make a series of tech acquisitions and investments. And we were like, that's kind of interesting. And then we kind of looked at the performance of the the share price, and McDonald's is amazing. It's really been on a tear um, over the last five years. And as we started talking to, to Leslie, who covers the company, and our, our colleague Thomas Buckley in the UK, we, we said, there's, a, there's actually a, you know, Jason, you love this, there's a great strategy story here. There um, you go. So we got to spend some time with... Steve Easterbrook, the CEO. Uh, Leslie, what, what's the vision? What's he, what's he doing with McDonald's? I think the plan is really to move McDonald's forward and not only do that, but do it at the pace that some of the smaller places are doing, which McDonald's, the biggest restaurant chain in the whole world, can they, can they keep up with some of the smaller, more nimble players? And that's what he's really trying to do, I think. Well, and Leslie, I, one of the reasons I really liked this story, first of all, it's a deep dive. And as Joel says, it is a great strategy story. But it's also a little bit counterintuitive, I think, especially given how breathless, and I put this on all of us, we have been around faux meat mm-hmm. and you know artisan artisanal burgers and all of these things that are coming up. This is a behemoth that Easterbrook seems to have really turned in a direction not without a sort of internal controversy, but th- this, is, this is a market shift. Yeah, that's right. And let's keep in mind, the food itself hasn't really changed that yeah. much, right? So there might be some new sandwiches. There might be some new toppings or something like that. But you know what? It's a core McDonald's. It's still burgers, fries, milkshakes. That's what he's promoting. And that's what he wants to really get in the hands of more people faster. That more people faster, I, I mean, to give you a sense of what their scale is, right? This is a global company. They basically feed 1% of the global population on any given day. That's, That's amazing. amazing scale, right? So when they make a tweak in like one of the ones, the opening anecdote that Leslie and, and Thomas uh, have some amazing reporting about is the moment that McDonald's decided to do delivery. And it wasn't like, oh, we'll get to that next year. It's like, no, 
I want this now, and I want it done globally. And when you think about the operations that it takes to actually do something like that, I mean, and, you know, they partnered with Uber Eats to accomplish that. But it speaks of like, okay, we have a Spanish Armada style ship here (laughs) that we need to move and we need to move it faster than ever before while competitors are doing kale salads or fried chicken sandwiches now. And we're McDonald's like so we have an advantage, but we we can't take that for granted. Well, and what? Go ahead, Leslie. No, I was going to say that's that's exactly right, Joel. I think, and and keeping in mind that that because this ship is so large, they have such a large influence. But but Easterbrook, he's really just brought this sense of urgency that wasn't there before, and he's not satisfied with taking years and years to do things. And an eighteen month plan for a new sandwich is not okay anymore. Well, and I love the story at the top that talks about, I think it was something like three years ago, an Easter book made a stop in Madrid before heading home for the Christmas holidays. And, you know, was it the soccer matches were going on? Right. And yeah. You could get a Whopper delivered, but you couldn't get a Big Mac, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, he was just really ticked off. And did he, like, call his guys? Oh, and yeah. Like, yeah. We're going to make that's a what big threw change. the whole delivery thing into, into motion. But, you know, the heart of this to me, though, is this, this tech thing, which is why the cover <laughs> looks like a Big Mac box. Only instead of saying a, saying Big Mac on the box, it says Big Data. I and see that what really, you did there. You see what I did? What we did there? That really, I think, speaks to the spirit of this because it, it that is the secret sauce, right? How can we use technology to sell burgers better? That uh, no, nobody else has really thought that way. But to give you a sense of where it can go is like you you drive through the drive through and suddenly that you get offered something that. You had last time because right. it remembered your license plate number. Right. We're basically there. Like yeah. we can, we can do that. Um, you might find it creepy, or it's like maybe it's a way to sell you a couple extra boxes of French fries. Well, and it does feel like you know, you know, a person my age is creepy is a millennial's cool. I'm so glad. Well, you Yeah, noticed. I don't have to open my mouth. I can just get yeah. my but French I fries. <laughs> the online, the online eating apps, right? They're like, oh, hey, you had this last time. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I want it again. And I don't know. I find them helpful. And that, it's a you great know, that story. was yet another acquisition that I made. Exactly. Uh, Great discussion, guys. Thank you so much. Check out uh, the cover story this week in Bloomberg Business Week. Leslie Patton, she wrote it with Thomas Buckley. There's a conversation that Carol had with Thomas Buckley on our weekend show Mm -hmm. in Bloomberg Business Week this weekend. Our thanks also, of course, to Joel Weber. He was over here earlier moderating a killer panel at the Global Business Forum back in our New York studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser live here in New York City at the Global Business Forum. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, we have a special edition of today's Drive to the Close. Checking in with one of the world's biggest global investors. I caught up with him earlier. That's Bruce Flatt. He's the CEO of Brookfield. Let's listen to what he had to say about the state of the global markets. As you're moving around, not just this event, but around New York City this week, you're talking to a lot of heads of state, a lot of investors. It's a world of instability, it feels like, fair to say. But how does it feel to a big investor? Look, I'd say uh, politically, 
many countries are up in the air and, uh, uh, and, and pretty extreme politics in those places. But on, on the ground in business, actually, it's pretty constructive. Uh, most countries of the world are doing okay. And uh, as value investors, we look for places where you can put money for a long term you can make decent returns uh, in the fullness of time, and uh, instability sometimes brings opportunities. So uh, you just need to think long term right. in these situations. Well, let's talk about those opportunities because, as you say, maybe some of this uncertainty drives valuations down because valuations have been pretty high. It feels like for the past couple of years. Are you seeing that yet? You know, well, not in in the uh, in the developed markets. Uh, valuations are still high, so so our focus is special situations in those places. Yeah, um, but. You know, Europe is being driven by interest rates that are really low today. Um, India has uh, um, a situation where the financial system needs capital, so there's a lot of opportunity there. In China, we're seeing more opportunities because of just the deleveraging going on in the country, and that's a positive, and it creates opportunity. All right, so you mentioned China. U.S.-China trade, obviously top of mind, continues to be... How does that play through, if at all, into your investments or into your thesis about the world? So, so our, our business is about um, buying real things, real assets. We buy pipelines, toll roads, real estate, renewable power plants, and, and they're local investments in every country. So we're in 35 countries in the world, but we're a local investor in every single country. So it's not trade doesn't really affect. On the margins, it does. If it affects a country's economy, mm-hmm. it obviously affects investments. If it affects its currencies, it affects your investment as a global investor. But uh, we're an on-the-ground investor, so trade isn't as important to us. Do you worry, as someone who has to think about the whole world, of the implications of a decoupling between the U.S. and China? Or does that just mildly change what the landscape looks like? Look, I'd say, again, as a long-term value group, um, we try to find great places in the world which have rule of law, functioning systems, respect for capital, operate with standards that we can operate with. We like to go there and we invest for long periods of time. Right. Yes. Does, uh, all, do all these things affect us? Yes, in the short term. In the long term, not really. So let's talk about one specific local national situation. That's Brexit. You know, we had Boris Johnson, the U.K. prime minister, leave here early, leave New York early, the U.N. General Assembly, to get back. We're going to be hearing from him later on today. You're a big uh, landowner and, and a big landlord, I should say, there in London. Canary Wharf, obviously, has been a big project. you got a lot invested there. How does that play through? We do. Um, business has been good since Brexit happened. Every day that this gets extended and nothing happens, fewer decisions get made, and that's not helpful for business. In the fullness of time, I think just getting something resolved will be a good thing for everyone, and London is going to be a center of commerce for a long time, and uh, we just need, a, we just need a, a solution to it, that's all. Do you feel like uh, folks are making or putting off decisions, you know, people who would be leasing from you are putting off decisions? Look, we had one building. Brexit happened. It was 25% leased. It opens this month. It's 100% leased at the rents we thought. So people make decisions. It takes longer. And right now, why would you make a decision in this month? So you'll wait. But uh, people do make decisions. They have to. Business goes on. Life goes on. 
And when you think about the infrastructure sort of possibilities that are out there right now, that's clearly on the minds of a lot of people here in the guise of sustainability and where those sorts of investments are happening. You mentioned renewables. How has your strategy evolved even over the past few years in terms of the types of infrastructure deals you might be doing? Yes. Yeah, so in renewables, we're the I think the largest private owner of renewables in the world. We've always believed in it. Uh, we were a large hydro owner for many decades. Uh, in the last 10 years, we've pushed into wind and solar, and uh, we'll continue to do that because we think it's it's for the future. And the, and and why it's different today is that it's actually economically feasible to do it without without uh, subsidies. Therefore, we're putting a, a much much more emphasis on that. Infrastructure in the world, though, is going to go, in, go into private hands. Right. Governments are indebted. They need to provide services to their people and more and more. And every country will be different, but more and more uh, infrastructure will be funded by private, by private entities. And we're one of them that can um, put capital together for that. You've got a lot of big investment partners around the world who commit hundreds of uh, billions of dollars, hundreds of millions, I should say, ultimately, and in, in hundreds of billions that you've collected. What's their mood right now? If you can generalize across the big institutional investors. You know, I just say that everyone in the world is thinking about, and especially people with large sums of money. Um, Japan went negative 10 years ago. Uh, Europe's just gone negative. What that means is that there's only one place to get returns in sovereign credit, and that's in the United States. And that's obviously been pushing the yield curve um, down on the back end. But increasingly, people are needing to put money into alternatives to that. And it's just pushing money into credit. It's pushing money into alternatives. And that is going to keep happening um, going forward if interest rates are at this level. You mentioned credit. You're about to combine officially, uh, close the deal with Oak Tree, that combination. What should we expect in the near term in terms of the opportunities that that presents? Well, we've announced closing. It's on Monday. Um, we're excited and thrilled to partner with Howard Marks and Bruce Karsh and their team. They're going to run the business. We're going to help them in any way we possibly can. We think it's an added uh, benefit to our institutional clients to offer their products. Um, and uh, And in the world we're in where... Um, low rates uh, are pushing money into alternatives. I think our general private equity real estate infrastructure franchise will benefit, and, and now we have a credit uh, offering to add to that. Bruce Flatt, the CEO of Brookfield, speaking with me earlier here at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. He, in fact, just wrapped up a really interesting panel discussion. We're told we weren't able to go right, see right. it because we've been uh, on the air, but with former President Clinton and the current president of Columbia. So between him and John Gray, you got a trillion dollars worth of uh, insights into the market there. Right, and these guys, I mean, I love when we're talking with these kinds of people because of uh, what they're seeing and their perspective. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.